Hello, Roger Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the latest edition of Hub Headlines, featuring our best commentary and analysis published today, Wednesday, February 7th. Our first commentary is from Harrison Lohman, who is The Hub's managing editor. He is writing today on whether journalism schools have failed an entire generation of students. The other day, I was rummaging around in my basement and stumbled across a tattered binder from my 2010 Carleton University journalism days. As I brushed away the dust from my 14-year-old handwritten notes, my eyes were drawn to my very first reporting class lesson. My professor, Norma Greenaway, a post-media journalist of 40 years, set out what us journalist hatchlings had to keep top of mind as we put pen to paper for the very first time. After all, we had responsibilities to the reader that we had to remember. I had scribbled down some words in my notepad and underlined them twice. Be balanced and fair. I was reminded of those marching orders last week when, appearing on our Hub Dialogues podcast, TVO's The Agenda host, Steve Pakin, said the freshest crop of Canadian journalists had a much weaker devotion to objectivity than their predecessors. Hub editor-at-large Sean Spear asked Pakin whether he had observed any fault lines or tensions around objectivity with the new generation of journalists. Yes, said Pakin. This was a major fault line nowadays with the new journalism, he confessed. This was big. One of the most well-known and respected impartial journalists in Canada was pointing out something my colleagues and I at CBC, CTV, and a variety of other outlets had whispered about over late-night beers for years. Pakin continued, That's the tradition that I was brought up in. I don't seek a particular political outcome when I cover an election campaign. I believe there are many younger people nowadays because they have been taught this way in journalism schools, who believe not only is it their job to figure out which is the best party that ought to govern, but then to tailor their coverage accordingly to ensure that the party that they don't like runs into the roughest time. I think it's a big problem. Pakin went on to add that, as an old-school journalist, he saw his job as reporting the objective facts on the ground. The reader needed to be allowed to come to his own conclusion. Q online Canadian journalist outrage. I listened to it twice. I thought I was perhaps having an aneurysm, tweeted Policy Options editor-in-chief. Genuinely at a loss here, added the narwhal's Emma McIntosh. Bubbles burst in newsrooms across the nation. The consensus seemed to be that we should dismiss this sort of critique in its entirety. Nothing to see here. Everything is fine. Move along. But there is something there. For the record, I think Steve likely overstepped. I say this as someone who worked with him for a decade in the mainstream media. Let's not feed outrage and potential conspiracy. I do not believe that journalism schools are nefariously and intentionally building an army of big L liberal partisan flying monkeys so that they can be released into the sky and dive bomb conservative candidates across the country. They are not raising left-wing partisans or telling them to support left-wing political parties. Journalism schools are, however, now developing and encouraging almost exclusively left-wing storytellers who are most comfortable with progressive storylines and who often question the value of objectivity. And at the end of the day, isn't that almost as bad for Canadian democracy? 
I have had the privilege of mentoring countless journalism school students and interns for the last 10 years, so I have had a front row seat for this shift in journalistic thinking. I have watched in real time how a new generation of journalists has changed the reasoning around what the purpose of journalism is, whether objectivity matters, and what constitutes a good story. Five or so years ago, I started noticing that nearly every pitch that came out of their mouths fell within the social justice realm. More specifically, pitches from the new progressive and increasingly orthodox perspective. They dealt with various conditions of victimhood that were not to be interrogated, but emblazoned on the banner of universal justice. This is not to say that some of these stories didn't deserve to be told. They should make up a slice of the journalistic story pie, but the whole pie? Stories increasingly fit a mold, which I would summarize as group felt hurt by here is their story. Their coverage increasingly prioritized lived experiences over expertise and first-person accounts instead of data. The job was sometimes seen as a way to upend power structures. Truths multiplied. Stories about members of a community could only be told by members of that community. Interns and students were at a loss when it came to right-leaning sources. It was rare, if ever, that they suggested a debate-style program. Many weren't checking their biases at the door. It seemed that some believed it was their job to tell their audience what was wrong, who was in the wrong, and what needed to be done about it, rather than allowing the audience to draw their own conclusions. What I could not determine was how much of this was caused by a new generation that saw the world differently, or a new kind of journalism professor in front of the chalkboard, or whether it was both. Following the 2020 murder of George Floyd in the United States, the wave of reckoning over racism crossed the border and lapped up against the doors of Canada's top journalism schools. In Toronto, a Ryerson University, now Toronto Metropolitan University, journalism student-led committee, wrote an open letter claiming institutionalized racism and discrimination at the journalism school had caused trauma for past and present students alike. More than 200 signatories said their school contributed to an unsafe learning environment that resulted in perpetuated systemic racism, further traumatizing students, and reinforcing the values of discrimination that Ryerson University was built on. They insisted the idea of objectivity in journalism undermined marginalized experiences. Student testimony included in-depth descriptions of alleged microaggressions, anxiety attacks, and tearful moments. The students and graduates called for staff to attend mandatory equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI, training, and de-escalation mental health and empathy lessons. The journalism curriculum, they insisted, needed to become equitable, accessible, and decolonized. If their demands were not met, they said the Canadian media industry would continue to be a product of perpetuated whiteness and elitism. If their demands were met, they insisted, together they and the school would build the next generation of Canadian journalists. Before the letter had even been released to the press, TMU's School of Journalism Chair Janice Neal and Associate Chair Lisa Taylor both resigned, saying it was time for a major reset. 
The faculty that remained promised to transform their journalism curriculum by enacting as many of the requests as possible, as quickly as possible. They would prioritize the student experience through a lens of EDI to expand the understanding of what journalism is and to introduce critical approaches to reporting classes. They also swore to provide equity training for staff, create safe space forums, and look into erasing the name Ryerson from student paper mastheads. In Ottawa, racialized students also used this moment to advocate for institutional change within a Carleton journalism department they described as a hotbed of white supremacy. An open letter written by journalism students and graduates was published accusing the school of perpetuating systemic discrimination against black, indigenous, and other people of color and deterring them from pursuing careers as journalists. The letter described racist slurs and microaggressions. It listed in detail situations students said they had experienced, including being mistaken for international students, repeated criticism of accents, and a lack of black teachers. This group also challenged the idea of journalistic objectivity, which they claimed was an idea invented by white, straight, cis male journalists. Among their list of requirements, the signatories called for all staff to undergo repeated anti-bias and critical race theory training. They also demanded the journalism school start surveying the race of journalism students. How did the adult faculty, composed of veteran journalists, respond to this call for major reform. They endorsed it. The staff acknowledged their role in the perpetuation of systemic racism in the education of young journalists. They assigned unconscious bias training for all instructors, gave them a diversity and inclusion curriculum checklist, and encouraged staff to enroll in an educational retreat entitled Theater of the Oppressed. They redesigned the first-year courses to ensure they had a strong central focus on diversity and inclusion. They said journalists and journalism students must challenge and dismantle white supremacist colonial mindset, which we have internalized both collectively and individually at the journalism school and in the industry. They injected anti-racist and decolonial pedagogies into the curriculum. Overall, the journalism school promised it would practice anti-racism and anti-oppression. Finally, they expressed how much they valued lived experience. For a school that once taught me to use simple, everyday language, they were certainly not practicing what they preached in their press releases. A handful of the changes made sense. Of course, the faculty should attract more diverse instructors. Of course, minority voices have sometimes been ignored or misrepresented in Canadian reporting. Of course, journalism students should be obligated to take a course on reporting on Indigenous peoples. Of course, there should be financial support for racialized students who are struggling financially. But you can call out racism and promote diversity without doing it entirely through the lens of the new identity politics. Politics is the key word here. Approaches like those referenced above are inherently political. They are regularly and exclusively employed by left-wing thinkers and left-wing political parties. I am sure many of the people using them actually mean well and believe they are committing real positive change. However, by accepting these recommendations in the way that they did, 
fully embracing, promoting, and teaching this terminology and the issues that come with it. Journalism schools send a political message to their students that this is the correct way and perhaps only way to see the world and tell the stories of Canadians. As journalist and podcaster Tara Henley summarized on our Hubs Dialogue podcast last week, this thinking has dominated the media. It is presented as a moral imperative. If you are a decent person, this is how you should think about the world. It is not presented as an ideology, but this is a political ideology and we are politicizing content. In sum, these schools act like they have cornered the moral market. They produce young journalists who struggle to understand or appreciate any competition to the progressive worldview. This new journalism education means students are often not ready to practice their trade in the real world. Yesterday, I spoke with a senior CBC host who asked to remain anonymous. The reality is, student journalists are coming into the workspace not fully understanding the fundamentals of journalism, they said. Activism has crept into their journalism. Thankfully, vetting and editing by more seasoned staff catch a bunch of it. But it's there. For me, it is all the more egregious given that J-School is about educating the next generation. Journalism teachers have immense power and responsibility when it comes to influencing the thinking of their students. On the first day of fall semester, they are met with near-blank slates, young, impressionable students who have few major points of reference when it comes to the craft of reporting. They are the ones teaching those who will help Canadians make sense of their country. It should be the professor's job to provide students with the full range of perspectives, exposing students to the issues and stories that Canadians on both the left and right value. Instead, the message sent to journalism students who consider right-wing topics and perspectives is that their kind of thinking is not welcome, and even more troubling, not morally right. A handful of journalism schools are currently struggling, declining trust and interest in news media, Trust in Canadian news has dropped 40% in five years. And a challenging job market has meant six Canadian schools have now paused or shut down admissions. While I am sure there are still rational journalism professors out there teaching the craft skillfully and without bias, I am increasingly worried. Last week, I raised some of my worries with the current director of Carleton's journalism program, Alan Thompson, a man I respect, one who taught me much about journalism. He's also someone who has worked to check his own biases, having twice run for the federal liberals. Thompson listened politely, didn't engage with my broader concerns, and graciously invited me to debate the nature of objectivity until the cows come home. So what is to be done? In my own small way, I have tried my best to counter some of this as a journalism mentor, providing some selective unlearning lessons. I have tried to teach students and interns that truth is not an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else, but a process of collective discovery. I have told them that while perfectly pure objectivity does not exist, as journalists we must identify our biases, check them at the door, and strive for objectivity. I have encouraged them to go out in the field and speak face-to-face -face with people with whom they disagree. I have told them to go out of their way to ask critical questions of those who shared their values. I taught them the advice of my journalism professor Norma all those years ago.
to be fair and balanced. And that's the real fair and balanced, not the ridiculous Fox News slogan. Consider this my open letter, my lived experience. That, that was a commentary by Harrison Lohman from today's edition of The Hub. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Rebecca Vachon. She is writing for us today on Maid's staggering growth rate and the need for urgent reform. Usually, governments welcome high adoption rates for new policies, but when that new policy is an exception within the Criminal Code for Euthanasia and Assisted Suicide, which then sees more than 30% annual growth in use, no government should be celebrating. And when such rates shoot past Health Canada's official projections by nearly a decade, any government should be deeply worried. Health Canada's 2022 report on deaths by euthanasia and assisted suicide, or medical assistance in dying, MAID, showed the continued increasing numbers of MAID deaths. They accounted for 4% of total deaths in Canada in that year. A joint Toronto Star and Investigative Journalism Bureau, IJB Analysis, revealed how this growth outpaces what we see in other countries around the world, including places where euthanasia and or assisted suicide have been legal for decades. The Star IJB conclusions match those of a forthcoming Cardis Health Report, which provides a detailed look at the rise compared to other jurisdictions. This high rate of growth is more than a statistical curiosity. It should prompt policymakers and all Canadians to reflect seriously on what the data tells us about the practice of euthanasia. For one, the legislation and regulations surrounding MAID aren't terribly useful because the eligibility definitions are vague. Initially, there was limited eligibility for those whose deaths were reasonably foreseeable, without specifying what foreseeable meant. This has allowed for a significant range of interpretation when assessing for MAID. Likewise, the criteria for unbearable suffering is also highly subjective. Without more tightly defined criteria, we cannot ensure a consistent application of MAID. This is something doctors Tang, Gind, and Lau discuss in a recent scholarly book, see page 278. Vague criteria with multiple interpretations lead to a system where patients can shop for assessors and providers willing to euthanize them if at first they receive a rejection. Without an updated system that would inform made assessors of previous requests, they may be unaware of the request history. Without a review function where rejected applications can be sent and evaluated, patients may continue shopping until they reach their objective. Another built-in problem with the existing criteria for MAID is that it does not require patients to exhaust treatment options. They need only be informed of them, offered consultations, or have discussed and given serious consideration to them. While medical interventions do not require patients to exhaust their options, an intervention meant to cause an early end to a patient's life is different. It requires a higher standard, particularly considering that patients may have had difficulty getting quality, timely health care already. And consider this, the trend in the proportion of made requests considered ineligible continues to drop year over year. In 2019, Health Canada reported 8% of requests were found ineligible, dropping to 4.1% in 2021 and just 3.5% in 2022. This suggests a weakness in euthanasia eligibility criteria, 
The federal monitoring and reporting system is based on conflicting interests, making enforcement of the system very difficult. The MAID assessors and providers self-report data. So, while those performing MAID do have criminal liability, they are also the ones reporting on whether all eligibility criteria and procedures were followed. Effectively, they oversee their own legal compliance. Sadly, there is no independent verification of compliance reports. As documented by Dr. Jaro Kotalik, a healthcare ethicist, in his edited volume on MAID, the monitoring system was never intended to ensure compliance. It merely provides information for a societal perspective, according to the government. This is unlike other international approaches, including in the Benelux countries, which were pioneers in introducing euthanasia, assisted suicide. Instead, Canada's federal monitoring via Health Canada has no review function and no ability to refer compliance issues for investigation. Provincial authorities, meanwhile, provide only limited and partial data on MAID. Only Ontario and Quebec provide publicly available reports on their reviews. And while Quebec reports have pointed to compliance issues and missing data in some cases, they provide no details about how these cases were investigated or handled. Perhaps we should not be surprised then, with the continued growth of euthanasia, when considering the inherent weaknesses of the existing system. This sort of growth is not, however, destiny. California, for instance, legalized assisted suicide also in 2016. Despite its slightly larger population size to Canada, only 3,344 Californians died by assisted suicide from legalization in 2015 through to 2021. By contrast, 31,664 Canadians died by euthanasia or assisted suicide within that same period. And while the government has temporarily delayed further expansions of MAID for mental illness as a sole underlying condition, this staggering rate of growth in the current system should prompt not only reflection, but a commitment to investigating what is going on. That was a commentary by Rebecca Vashon, Health Program Director at CARDIS, published in today's edition of The Hub. You can find the full text of her article on our website, thehub.ca. Up next is by Wodek Schemberg, writing on Canada's commitment to multiculturalism and its breaking point. Sometimes a seemingly small figure carries the weight of far-reaching transformative power. As of 2020, a mere 3.6% of the world's population did not reside in their birth country, amounting to roughly 280 million individuals. This statistic encapsulates individual stories and struggles but also the reshaping of nations and geopolitical alliances because of global migrations. I belong to this 3.6%. There are many more who wish to join me. In 2021, 16% of the world's population, roughly translating to nearly 900 million people, expressed the hope to leave their own country permanently if they could. Our current debates about immigration to Canada are, so far, but a pale reflection of the broader global conversation that is increasingly marked by deepening hostility to immigrants. And we are not talking about Denmark, where attitudes towards Muslim immigrants have hardened, even under a female social democratic prime minister. Read about the treatment of migrants in South Africa. Xenophobia rears its ugly head in South Africa, alerts the Human Rights Watch. In Germany, a former head of domestic intelligence has recently said that 
Germany needed chemotherapy to treat the cancer of too many immigrants. Globalization has done wonders for breaking down xenophobic boundaries at the same time as it provoked, what else? A pulsating backlash that fuels the populist rage against visible change in their streetscapes. Dislike of immigrants might manifest itself as being about race, jobs, or culture. But underneath it, it's about something more basic than that. It's about xenophobia, one of our most basic instincts. We all have it, to different degrees. No one escapes xenophobia. That's what the hunt for unconscious bias is all about. There is nothing socially constructed about suspicion of strangers. The discrimination, and therefore a bias, that comes with it is not the original sin, as Wokeness would like us to believe. But what we make of it, how we manage our xenophobic tendencies, that is the mark of our civility. With the promise of half a million new arrivals each year, against the backdrop of a strained housing market, the subject of immigration remains at the forefront of daily headlines and political debate. And even though there has been broad political unanimity that has existed so far, it might be wise to consider that it could fray in the future. Though to be fair, looking at Bernier's PPC, not finding much political traction among the most disgruntled, shows how it is still off-putting to most Canadians to use openly anti-immigrant language. But that does not mean that in the future, Canadians might continue to evade a more demanding discussion about integration of a growing number of immigrants. One of them is whether there could there be a tipping point beyond the current 23% share of immigrants. After all, Sweden with a 20% share of immigrants can certainly be described as having moved beyond a tipping point. Sweden's gun crime death rate is now the second highest in Europe. The first real hint of a tipping point was the recent series of demonstrations regarding the Hamas-Israel conflict. Even though the implicit deal with immigrants is that they leave their home politics behind, some of them have no intention of doing so. And whether it's Muslims against Jews, Ethiopians versus Eritreans, or Sikhs using Canada as platform to wage their war with India, Canada is going to be increasingly tested on whether diversity is really our strength. Through my journey from Poland, through East Germany and Sweden, to ultimately planting my familial roots in Canada since 1973, I have been a witness to the gradual embrace of multiculturalism by English Canada. Its politics and culture have been profoundly affected by it. As a television producer, it was a subject that has held my ongoing attention for the last 43 years. It engages me personally and intellectually. My immediate family traces its various roots to Poland, Sweden, Jamaica, Cuba, and Turkey. So, I live it and I think about it. I arrived in 1973 together with 184, 200 other strangers that year. I encountered a country that did not speak with one voice in two languages, in which many identified more with their province than with their country and where hockey was God. It also had a prime minister who proclaimed a year earlier that there is no such thing as a model or ideal Canadian. In this respect, Pierre Trudeau's Canada was perfect for me. If there is someone who could not be offended by being called a rootless cosmopolitan, that would be me. I didn't come to Canada to join a community. I came to Canada because of romantic entanglement and an abiding wish to leave Sweden. 
I did not come to Canada because I was looking for a better life. In this, I'm different from most of my fellow immigrants. My life by all objective criteria was plenty good. I came to Canada looking for a different life. So Pierre Trudeau's assurance that there was nothing to emulate was fine with me. I was good with the don't do anything illegal and pay your taxes category of Canadian patriotism. But I do not think that this was an unalloyed good for Canada and for immigrants who settled here. It certainly was good for not upsetting Quebec more than absolutely necessary, but it also contributed to an evisceration of Canadian political and cultural discourse about the future of Canadian mosaic, a phrase coined in 1938, but which has gone out of academic or journalistic fashion after its heyday in the early 70s. Canadian mosaic fell victim to the winds of intellectual chaos of the last 10 years. The same thing happened with multiculturalism. Neither phrase is intersectional enough. Both hint at an approximation of oneness or unity. It's the same kind of thinking that leads the president of Canadian Historical Association to happily proclaim in the hub that Canada has no single national story, and that's a good thing. Justin Trudeau reaffirmed his father's legacy in an interview with the NYT magazine in 2015 when he proclaimed that there is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada, and that makes us the first post-national state. No roots and no history that coheres except, as of late, history of colonialist oppression. A post-national state, going by our PM's record, is one that is responsible for wishing to clean up after the crimes the nation has committed. It takes to be a certain kind of immigrant to notice that Canada has a way of being inscrutable to outsiders. It took me something like five years of living in Toronto to begin to puzzle together the outlines of what drives Canadian politics. And I did not have a factory job and a family to support. Your average immigrant doesn't have much time to reflect on the nature of their country. Most people don't. Either a country has a narrative to offer to its new citizens, or it doesn't. Having mostly abandoned pride in its historical roots, Canada is hopping for the future to be a solution to the question of who are we, if there is going to be a we. In the meantime, we must worry about housing for new immigrants, hoping for a time when more of us show interest in our national basement and the metaphysical nourishment that might be found there. That was Woodick Schamberg appearing in today's Hub. He is a former producer for TVO, the Ontario Educational Broadcaster. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. I am Rudyard Griffiths the host of Hub Headlines. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. Thank you for listening.